Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, and I am joining Deep State Radio from Canal Side here in Venice, Italy. Uh, closer to Venice, California, of course, we have Corey Shockey um, at, at, out in Palo Alto. Uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, we have David Sanger, where he's about to teach and shape a bunch of young minds. And uh, in D.C., doing the same thing, of course, Associate Dean of Georgetown School of Law, Rosa Brooks. Yeah, but have you noticed that I'm always in the little studio in the third sub-basement while the rest of you are in places like Australia and Venice? (laughs) It's because you take post-apocalyptic survival more seriously. (laughs) I never leave this basement. (laughs) You you have to tell us, is this the first Deep State Radio episode that was ever done as you are basically being... uh, taken down a, a pulled down a canal in in the the back territories <laughs> a gondolier singing to you bellinis <laughs> over the tops of elegant glasses right yeah, exactly hand-blown glass from just down the street and i also want to know yeah, david are you a fellow at the kennedy school at Harvard? Whoa. Oh. <laughs> it's getting good here. That's a cheap shot, Rosa. <laughs> I understand that some very distinguished people was, have been. He was on the faculty at the Kennedy School with Spicer and Lewandowski and Chelsea Manning. <laughs> right. It's a great group. <laughs> it's a great group. You Harvard. Know, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's just all how you, it's all, everybody's got a different way of learning, you know? It's fantastic. <laughs> Corey, you must really appreciate this as part of Harvard's effort to ensure that Stanford is the greatest. <laughs> I know. We are super grateful out here at Leland Stanford's Junior University that Harvard is diminishing itself so rapidly, and now we just have to catch up to Berkeley. Well, and also the fact was that the Hoover Institution was founded there to make, you know, work for uh, unemployed Republicans, and yet you wouldn't hire any of these guys. Because <laughs> none of them are Republicans. Well, yeah, that's... Oh, no, you don't. <laughs> Some of them are. <laughs> nice try. I'm pretty, sure, I'm pretty sure Chelsea Manning is a Republican. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, anyway, yeah, David, what are you doing? Resign. Have some character. Have some spine. <laughs> resign in protest. You should resign in protest. No, 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 David. You need to stay there to model what intellectual seriousness and engagement with student development ought to look like. But supposing my alternative was to, you know, have David's friends pull me down, uh, you know, 
the canals with Bellinis and so forth. Shouldn't I do that instead? You have yes. to teach at Columbia for that to happen, Dave. Oh, okay. <laughs> By the way, I no longer teach at Columbia. I have moved my affiliation <laughs> to, Venice. to the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University, Woo! where I am now a senior fellow, um, so that I can concentrate a lot more activities on, on Venice. Sith Avenue. <laughs> <laughs> Just, I have a parking space at the Carnegie Endowment. This allows me to get double duty out of it because these places are next to each other folks those of you who are listening now okay know, our time... nerds already google mapped it david as yeah, you were no, saying it no that's true most of our nerds actually go to school there but um i you know every once in a while we'll go we'll do this we'll start out we're having a good time we're laughing and then some jerk later on listens to this thing not that i'm judging our listeners who we love and they go you know you guys could save your yucking it up for later let's get right to the meat of the matter oh. <laughs> you know, you, I, i've got a long podcast okay i have a message for those er listeners who have that attitude get yes. your own silo exactly out of yeah. our silo and into your own folks and if you want to listen to a boring foreign policy podcast i would Never mind. So here's <laughs> good dog, David. Good, yeah, good dog. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, I've been well trained. You know, Rose is the zookeeper of all of our spirit animals. Um, no, I'm a little worried about a few of them. They've been rather quiet. Well, some have been quiet. Some have been kind of. Avalanche. Also, sort of Corey Shockey's horse has gotten just a little bit kind of alt right. What? <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's understandable that my spirit animal would pull to the right, but alt-right is way out of bounds. Yeah, well, I guess that's true. So, David, let's assume for a moment, as will happen in just minutes, you're walking down the corridors of the Kennedy School, dodging Corey Lewandowski and Sean Spicer and the ghost of Chelsea Manning, and a student comes up to you and says, Professor Sanger, oh my God. Okay, and they say, Professor Sanger, I've read that this week the United Nations General Assembly is meeting in New York City. Is there anything of significance in foreign policy terms happening there, or is it all one big cocktail party? Well, most years I would tell you that it's all one big cocktail party, and I go to it each year and usually try to flee the jurisdiction by you know Wednesday or Thursday, and I'll be. I'll be down there uh, tomorrow morning, bright and early. But um, the fact of the matter is that some years it's actually pretty interesting. And usually those are early in the administration. So in 2002, in uh, September of 2002, was the speech where President Bush basically laid out the conditions under which he wouldn't invade Iraq. And tomorrow we're going to hear, uh, on, on Tuesday when the president uh, speaks, we're going to hear uh, a little bit of a similar thing about what his vision is for dealing with the Iran nuclear agreement and dealing with North Korea. So I actually think this year could be pretty interesting. Wow. It's going to be interesting, Rosa. Are uh -huh. you interested? No, I'm fascinated. <laughs> I, no, I will say that... Um... 
the UN is just a, a horrible, terrible place from the perspective of interestingness. And it's not really their fault, just any place where people have to communicate in multiple languages simultaneously and everybody works for government is, is you know, doomed to be a place of abiding boringness. Um, but David is absolutely right that if you can get past having, you know, simultaneous translation of everything into a gazillion languages uh, and lots of stilted uh, talking points being delivered in a very formal tone, um, this year this year is potentially kind of important. Uh, there's a lot on the agenda and there's and, and as usual, I think the the big news will be to a great extent, not so much what happens on stage, but all the behind the scenes bilateral meetings that are going to take place. I, I actually expect Trump, uh, to have one of his rare moments of good behavior when he makes his speech uh, and to stick to the teleprompter and, and the script. Uh, and then everybody can write articles saying how amazingly presidential and statesmanlike he was. Uh, but I also expect him to do his usual going off message in crazy ways the second he's uh, off stage and in those bilats. You mean like he did on Monday when he spoke about progress for UN reform by referring to the Trump Tower, which is the <laughs> yeah, well, existing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's, you know, you can't expect perfection. Yeah, no, he's a great man. Oh, Corey, what are what is what are your expectations? <laughs> I mean, you are like you know the prototypical deep state nerd. You love this stuff. You are sitting I there do. in front of. CNN. You're exactly right. My opening salvo, David, is to object vehemently to the fact that you think UN cocktail parties are not the advancing of our democratic agenda. Because I can tell you, as somebody who spent 15 years working NATO issues for the American government, nothing important happens in the meeting. Everything important happens in the corridors and preferably at the cocktail parties, because that's when people tell you, oh, well, you know, my government's going to have to take this position. But actually, we are open to several alternatives. And if a consensus were to form around this, we could join it or we have a new idea. We're not ready to be public with it. But here. Right. So mm -hmm. the actual practice of diplomacy isn't the formal statements I agree with Rosa laboriously um, translated into 186 languages, but it is the actual throwing together of government representatives to work on hard problems. And, and that does happen in the corridors and the cocktail parties. Second thing yeah. I would say is that I agree that this is going to be a particularly interesting UN session in part because Everybody in the international community, all of the foreign representatives, are are glued to their TVs or to their um, to their screens or in the meeting, focusing intently on whether Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde is going to show up as the president of the United States. I thought he was actually remarkably restrained in his in his brief comments about UN reform, because compared to the stupidity that he has been talking about the UN, it sounds like the foreign service officers who work for Nikki Haley, who managed to persuade the president, um, you know, to appear and speak on script about it, did a mighty good job against Herculean odds. Well, David, 
you know, despite the impulse of the New York Times to normalize Trump and write articles about how he's really an independent and, you know, um, you know, the, the, please, he's not. Please, he's really a Democrat. Yeah, right. He's <laughs> no, <really a> you don't. <laughs> he's, you know, but there's this desire to say something. Don't you think he's going to come off the rails at some point here? I mean, he's already come off a little bit here. Or do you think it's just this is teleprompter week and he's going to stand up and he's going to say the world should be a better place. America will lead the world. Blah, 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 blah. Well, first of all, I want to know if the blah, 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 blah comes from you're putting your face down in the canals. Because I can tell you, <laughs> they use those canals for other purposes. The water's not and clean, And you David, might want to be a little it. careful with that, David. Um, <laughs> thank you. Okay. Thank, thank you. Pro tip. Okay. okay. So, Head on um, over to the Charles and see what you've got floating down there. <laughs> okay. So the, um, the, the answer to the question, I think, is here is a president who got elected on America first, and we'll set aside for a moment whatever personal blame I have for uh, for the phrase. And uh, he's going to uh, wait. Just one second. I just not just, I just for want the to say something for the presidency. Yeah, I, I just want to say one thing. There, we will never set that aside. You are responsible <laughs> for Donald Trump being president. You are responsible for his foreign policy. It, and and when they call me to say, give me a good first line for the obituary of David Sanger, it's going to involve both of those two things. <laughs> I have a lot of friends who can provide better first lines than that. Uh, so. Um, I think the answer to your question uh, here is that in this case, he, America first is going to meet the building that views, you know, world and world peace and world interests and world development first. And these are incompatible. So um, you heard uh, last week in briefing the press about the uh, meetings, uh, General H.R. McMaster, the national security advisor, uh, came out and described the different goals that the president had. And so the first two were versions of America first and American prosperity. And the third one was respect for sovereignty, which is basically what they're going to say about uh, Iran. You didn't hear out of that global prosperity. You didn't hear out of that solving inequality around the world. You didn't hear anything about certainly global governance uh, and so forth. So respect for international law, treaties, so forth and so on. So that that's the that's the hard part of this that's built in. So what the president's going to have to do is walk the fine line of talking about building alliances, but do it in a way that it's clear that those alliances depend on their agreeing with the United States. And that they're not going to get anything out of us. At, that's right. So right. <clears throat> Iran's actually an interesting example. So he's going to go after the Iran deal, which, as you recall, then... During the campaign, he certainly um, uh, beat up on it a lot. Uh, he wasn't terribly specific in the interviews uh, that I did about what he didn't like about it. But now they've come up with a short list. But what's interesting is as they head in to try to get an agreement to extend, maybe not blow up the agreement itself, but put an addendum to it, get the Europeans to negotiate that, which I think the Iranians will, will resist at all at all cost. Um, What's going to be fascinating uh, about this is I don't think the U.S. is prepared to give up anything in additional for that. So the idea of a two-way negotiation going on here is kind of missing. 
This reminds me of a particularly tragic uh, episode from my childhood when I when I started first grade and I went to a new school. <laughs> I went to a new school and I didn't have any friends because I was new. And a little girl who was very popular named Katrina came up to me and she said, "I'll be your friend if you give me two dollars and fifty cents." And I thought this was a I thought this was a really good deal because I, I didn't have any friends. Uh, so I came in the next day with two dollars and fifty cents in change and a little plastic baggie, and I gave it to her. Um, but then the clinking noise of the coins uh, uh, attracted the attention of the teacher who investigated and made Katrina give me my $2.50 back. In this case, there was a happy ending because Katrina said she would be my friend anyway, even though she was compelled to return the $2.50. But it does strike me that Trump's approach to uh, alliances is not dissimilar to Katrina's, although I'm not sure he'll still be friends if he if he doesn't get the, the loot. I have to tell you, I'm about to commit suicide. <laughs> Isn't that a sad story? I, Katrina, <laughs> if you're listening, saddest... I want you to know that I forgive you. That is Katrina, you bitch. <laughs> oh, no. Katrina. I'm a very Rosa forgiving kind of person. Rosa is now in charge of the deep state. She knows where you are. She's coming for you. Uh, and it's uh, uh, no, no, no. None of that stuff. No. Let me just say this story has a super happy ending. That's right. And maybe Donald three, Trump. Rosa was the most popular girl in school well, because of her winning personality and kindness. And the fact that I distributed so the spare with. coins around the room. Oh, no. <laughs> but, but, she was but. A, she was able to spread the 250 around. I believe that room. Corey, um, I believe that Corey in one of our recent episodes, Corey and I concluded that maybe Donald Trump is really a big chicken. He, he's got lots of bellicose rhetoric that he doesn't really do anything. So perhaps the same holds true for his approach to alliances. And indeed, I think it is quite likely that it will, that we will continue to say, Oh, you bad Iranians, we demand A, B, C, D, E, and they'll sort of go, well, no, and then we won't do anything anyway. So it will be much like Katrina. So, so Corey, I think oh, go I'm on. sorry, go ahead, David. Nope, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, David has picked a topic where there is an air, there's, there's some concern, right? Iran is a sensitive issue. Trump has said some nutty things about Iran. Trump's administration has tried to rein that in. It's possible if he's reading from a teleprompter and the remarks on the teleprompter are written by someone who works for H.R. McMaster, you may get something fairly sane. If the remarks are written by Stephen Miller, you may get something completely lunatic. Um, and so Iran is an area to watch. Are there other areas that you're really, you know, you've got an eye out for where um, our locomotive in chief might go off the rails? Uh, North Korea, anyone? <laughs> Yes. Okay. Come on, David. Don't cherry pick the easy ones. Leave some for me so that <laughs> I look, you know, like yeah. I could be a fellow at the Institute for Politics at the Kennedy School. Yeah. Um, well, I just want to know why as... no one's willing to pay me two dollars and fifty cents to be their friend. David, yeah. I will. Be, I will pay you two dollars and fifty cents to be my friend. Okay. Do I get three dollars? Anything? Right. Immediately I... throws you under the bus. Look, so Corey, I, I just I want to say one thing. When David starts to team teach his course with Omarosa, we all have to go. <laughs> all right. Now, I would pay folding money to watch David suffer through well, that. Well, and the other thing, it's more discreet. It doesn't clink like coins. <laughs> okay, so to David's question, um, I do – Rosa is exactly right. So the president 
is a chicken hawk, right? So he talks tough. But if you don't listen to what he's saying and just look at the choices the administration has made on ISIS, on responding to the chemical weapons use by Bashar al-Assad, on Afghanistan, and even on Korea, which I agree with David Sanger is going to be a big and important subject at the UN. Um, the president talks outlandishly, but the decisions the administration is making are actually much more reasonable than you would think if you were listening to the president. The problem is the president going to the United Nations General Assembly to give a speech, everybody is going to be listening to him. And some of the things that were coming out of the not just the White House, but also um, Ambassador Haley in the run-up to the UN suggest to me that they still haven't figured out that that there is that choosing preventative war on the Korean peninsula will not only be a disaster for American national security interests, a disaster for the people of South Korea and probably Japan, um, but also, um, you know, as the Japanese uh, foreign minister said, uh, we think we have to absorb an attack before we respond because that's who we are. And I actually think we ought to very seriously consider uh, rolling the clock back to the days when we didn't think preemption or more accurately preventative war was in our interests. Because one of the things the president should learn from talking to the UN General Assembly is that the UN is the place where the United States makes its case to the world. And what you ought to understand from that experience is that most countries actually give us the benefit of the doubt. Most of them want us to succeed at what we're doing in the world because most of them prefer us to other countries that could impose the rules of order. And President Trump is burning very quickly through that goodwill, not by the things he does necessarily, although on trade policy he's burning through capital, but mostly because of the stupid, offensive stuff he says. Well, you know, I have to say, there is so much wisdom in what Corey says. It's yet another reason that we rank Stanford as the best university in America. But, <laughs> David... I want to give you an opportunity there at that other school to talk a little bit about North Korea, about which you've been doing some really magnificent reporting, um, and what you think is going to actually emerge this week substantively, if anything. Well, here's the oddity, that um, some of the wild things that are said, fire and fury, all that kind of stuff, even, Corey, the part about preventive war, is one of two things. Either... It's a brilliantly conceived effort to force the Chinese, the Russians, and to some degree other players into doing things that they would never otherwise agree to go do. Or these folks are really talking themselves into going to do something like this. And we don't know yet what it is, because when you get people from the Trump administration off the record talking about this, they talk in the same terms as the way they talk on the record which either means that they've really worked this thing out really well, 
uh, or it means that um, they really are planning that that they cannot allow North Korea to have a nuclear weapon that can reach the United States. Um, certainly, that's they, that's what they say. So, what what are the options here? I think the option number one is the president's going to use this week to try to make it clear to the Chinese, although Xi Jinping will not be in New York, nor will Vladimir Putin, nor will Angela Merkel. So he's basically- Nor will Narendra Modi, nor will, you know, uh, I don't know, most of the other significant leaders in the world. Which and by the way, this is one of the most important metrics of waning American soft power. That they don't feel the necessity to come and deal with them? Yeah. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. But it also means that everything is going to focus even more attention on what he says, because there's going to be no alternative narrative out here. Um, so he's going to That's make a good a, point. He's going to make a series of um, you're supposed to say, I agree with you completely. Uh, <laughs> Yay! <laughs> uh, the the um, wow. It's get it's bad, but, you know, David. Ben, just pour yourself another drink. It's um, really sad. Yeah, yeah go on. Really sad. So, so um, I, that's stage one. Then stage two is going to be: Are there covert things the United States can do to slow the North Korean program? And I'm sure they're working away trying to come up with a whole bunch of them. And then number three is going to be making the decision: We're either going to live with this, or that General McMaster, when he said the other day. Uh, there is a military solution to this. It's horrible. It's awful. You don't want to look at it, but there is one, whether he really means that. Mm. Yeah, I I yeah. thought it was yeah. striking that both McMaster and Haley, I mean, Ambassador Haley said, well, you know, we've gotten as far as we can get in the UN Security Council. Let's pitch this over to Secretary Mattis and the Pentagon, which, first of all, would be a terrible and narrowing of the scope of strategy to simply military options. But, but um, if, you know, if that's what she's saying in private as well, then I am genuinely concerned that the administration is taking a reckless approach to a problem that doesn't have a very wide margin of error. But H.R. McMaster was equally intemperate with his, we're out of road, we're out of time. I, I'm sympathetic to David's argument that they're trying to reestablish um, the the military option as a way to deter, but it's not working. It's actually making us look like we're the danger rather than North Korea. Well, I think what's happening with McMaster is that somebody somewhere in some meeting in the White House is saying, we need to look like we will be tough in order to get the agreement that we want to get. And if they don't think we're willing to go to war, we're not going to get anywhere. And there is some, you know, sort of merit to that. But of course, it has to be complemented by real hardcore diplomatic action. And Rosa, that brings me to sort of the other big story of Unga Week, I think, because, you know, one is, you know, is Trump going to go off the rails and I mean that—that's what my column in the Washington Post, on, uh, you know, is 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 about right now, and 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 it's what I'm hearing from a lot of people, and it's why people are going to watch it closely. Another is Iran, another is North Korea, but another one is kind of, you know, Nikki Haley's coming out party. <laughs> in other words, 
you know, Tillerson has been on the ropes. Everybody's talking that Tillerson may leave at some point soon. Nikki Haley has actually gotten somewhat decent reviews for people, although, you know, anybody who's a fair grader has to give her mixed reviews. She's managed at the same time to defend the president and when the opportunity presents itself, sort of spin his rhetoric in more constructive ways. This is really going to be her chance next to the president to demonstrate whether or not she might be the next secretary of state. Um, any views on that? Yeah, no, I, I I actually think that Nikki Haley has done better than many of us would have expected. Um, you know, she she doesn't come from a foreign policy background, needless to say, uh, but but she has. You know, while I don't, while I don't always or even frequently agree with her on policy issues, I do think she's she's done a very skillful job of rapidly mastering a lot of pretty tricky issues as well as a lot of pre- pretty tricky relationships. Um, no question, I think, in terms of for whatever it's worth, you know, her her public image to the tiny percentage of the American public that pays attention and and I think her reputation among within the foreign policy community if it matters uh, you know she's she seems more both more visible more credible and more relevant to Trump's decision making than Rex Tillerson the Secretary of State uh, and and you know there was a piece in 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 the Times uh, Raising the question of you know how much influence does she actually have over Trump, to which I think the answer is almost assuredly, almost assuredly, uh, not that much. Insofar as no one has that much influence over him, um, but she seems to have about as much influence as anyone, and she seems to have done a pretty good job, sort of be, making nice with with McMaster and making nice with the Pentagon and making nice with others, to to the point where the the rumor mill is suggesting that. You know, Tillerson may just get squeezed out because he's so invisible that Trump himself may have forgotten he's even there. And maybe Trump, Trump may already think Nikki Haley is secretary of state for all we know. <laughs> um, <laughs> that would explain a lot. Right. Um, but but no, I mean, she's 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 very skillful. Uh, and, and not only does she manage to sound like she's supporting Trump, she also manages to strategically distance herself from him at appropriate time without so far apparently having generated any any hostility from him, which is quite a feat. Well, yeah, because everybody else who expresses any criticism criticism of him gets into the doghouse, like mm-hmm. Gary Cohn, you know, who the, the president won't even look in the eye. Um, well, but let's also acknowledge the double standard, which is that she's, she's a girl, a beautiful woman, and he cuts them a lot more slack than he does the men. And I, I think that's right. I, I I think that that is unquestionably part of it. She's she's not threatening, and she bats her eyelashes at him and says, oh, Mr. President, that's so smart. And then she goes out and says something that, generally speaking, is significantly smarter than whatever he just said, and he feels good about himself and her. Mm-hmm. That, that's setting the bar pretty low. David, what do you think of Nikki Haley so far? Well, I find it fascinating that on major policy issues, she has stepped out and given policy-related speeches, whether you agree with them or not. Most recently on Iran, about two weeks ago at AEI, that first of all, you would have expected the Secretary of State to give And secondly, that it wasn't even clear the Secretary of State agreed with, which made you wonder whether the Secretary was actually, you know, endorsing these, 
had read the speech ahead of time. So, you know, one of the things I like about Nikki Haley is she actually gets out and discusses diplomacy, even if you don't always agree with what she's saying. When Rex Tillerson comes out to talk, there's a 50-50 chance he's out there to describe getting a 5% additional margin of efficiency out of some department. (laughs) (laughs) So he hasn't quite understood what set of incentives make diplomats tick, and it actually isn't marginal efficiency. Um, It is kind of interesting, just as, you know, sort of the Kremlinology of this goes, that when the White House was teeing up the coverage for this meeting, they rolled out Haley and McMaster and not Tillerson. I've never seen that before. I would see Tillerson, I would see the secretary first, maybe making the overall statements, and then they would bring in the U.N., ambassador to give the background briefing about, you know, each of the meetings and what they hope to it. I've seen that lots, but excuse me, can you imagine John Kerry, you know, allowing uh, his UN ambassador, Samantha Power at that time to sort of take the lead on that? Can you imagine Hillary Clinton doing that? Can you imagine Condoleezza Rice doing that or Colin Powell? It's really hard for me to imagine the last four secretaries allowing that to happen. Well, I think we can go further. I mean, first of all, you know, I was one of those, you know, reflexive uh, sort of pundit types that said, oh, my God, they've picked Nikki Haley, somebody who had even less experience than Rudy Giuliani, who was one of the people that they were (laughs) rumoring for this. Um, And I have to say, you know, things have turned out pretty well. She's done a a much better than expected job, and and I was you know precisely wrong about that. I guess, although she didn't have David, any. David, really you were precisely with... wrong. <laughs> Thank you. Right, exactly. I was waiting to hear that. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but well, and I'll you know I'll admit it. But but she, but she's done a pretty good job. I really have a hard time thinking back uh, in recent history on a on a UN ambassador who has a higher profile. Or seems to be more influential in U.S. foreign policy making. Samantha Power, wait a minute, aren't you forgetting our just just uh, just past <laughs> ambassador to the UN? I mean, I think Samantha, I think Samantha had an extremely high profile, and I think her skill set in some ways was very similar to the skill set that Nikki Haley seems to be demonstrating uh, and developing, which is to say that that she's. She's extremely articulate. She's charming. She's got great people skills and knows how to make use of her staff by actually having them tell her what's going on. So she sounds like she knows what she's talking about on a wide range of topics. And, you know, that that, that Samantha Power, I think, was was very visible, certainly had a higher glamour quotient than her secretary of state, which wasn't particularly difficult given <laughs> given who she, you know, was working with. But um, but so, so I to me, this doesn't seem particularly novel. To me, this actually this seems like we have another clearly very strong, very capable woman. I don't I don't agree with her on most issues, but but I think she's doing a good job. Uh, David, please tell I me you're going to Adelaide Stevenson. What? What? Could what? Go on, Please tell me you're going to Adelaide Stevenson. As I, your choice. Go on, say <laughs> Adelaide Stevenson. It'll make Corey feel better. You know, I, 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 David remembers Adelaide Stevenson. I was way too young. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I, Samantha Power was a, a brilliant communicator, had a very high profile, but there was a question about 
whether or not she would be permitted, not that she wasn't capable of it, whether she would be permitted to go out and speak and travel the world on the biggest issues of the day. So in the end, John Kerry made sure he was at the Iran negotiations. The UN um, uh, ambassador was not. Let's say we get into some additional negotiations with Iran now. I have a very hard time imagining Rex Tillerson having the patience, the time, or maybe even the longevity in the job to go and, and take that issue up. Whereas I could easily imagine Nikki Haley being sent in, especially given how strong her speech was on Iran, as the one who would go negotiate whatever the follow-on deal was. Yeah, well, I think that's right. I, personally, I think you're overstating the influence of Samantha Power. And I seem to recall her last year in office, her being rather frustrated with a number of the decisions of the administration. And I also recall David's point, which is people didn't let her get out in front. On a number of issues, you know, on, on North Korea, for example, uh, and and also I, I think on Iran and and uh, on on the the Syria issue, um, uh, I've seen Nikki Haley ahead of Rex Tillerson. Although I think I mean, this may say less about uh, Nikki Haley or Rex Tillerson than it just says about the generally weird and undisciplined nature of the the Trump White House. I mean, you know, the Obama administration. Uh, Whatever its faults, and and some would argue that in some ways this was one of them, <laughs> it, it tended to be hyper-controlling of what anybody outside of the White House said, uh, you know, and, and to really keep people on a, a very tight leash. Um, and uh, the Trump administration, you know, could not be more different insofar as they're, you know, until certainly until Kelly took over as chief of staff uh, and, and even to a significant extent since then, there's no sense of process whatsoever. I mean, there is a little bit of sense of a free for all of everybody just goes out and does and says whatever. And does Tillerson agree with Nikki Haley? Well, does anybody in this administration agree with anybody else in this administration? Well, let me shift the subject. We only have like five minutes left. Corey, um, the UN General Assembly is partially the president's speech. We have established that the president's going to probably stick to the teleprompter. He's going to give one of those stilted speeches uh, that it's more likely that he'll come off the rails in impromptu remarks or Twitter. I mean, over the weekend, he had one of his real Twitter fits, which was highlighted by his a video of him swinging at a golf ball and it hitting Hillary in the back and knocking her over, uh, thus showing he has no sense of humor and promotes violence against both women and former candidates. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, which is, you know, it's typical uh, Trump. Uh, but, you know, it, it could happen in that way. But another part of the UN General Assembly is kind of one-on-one -on -one interpersonal schmoozing, hobnobbing, establishing relationships. How do you think that's going to go for this guy? So President Trump is evidently holding all of those bilateral meetings at uh, his commercial property, uh, not in New York, in New Jersey. This is partly driven by the fact that the Chinese bought the hotel that the United States typically held these meetings in, and we doubted the, <laughs> the confidentiality of the meetings once the Chinese did. 
but it it's but that problem's really solved in Trump Tower. because it's actually the trump administration that's the risk of confidentiality here Um, so there's a weird sort of uh you know go and pay homage kind of almost chinese tribute system to the way the president approaches these bilateral meetings uh and the nsc is trying to put as positive a face as possible on it by suggesting that well, you know, since since the big dogs aren't coming to the UNGA or won't come out to see Trump at his golf course, he's going to use this opportunity to meet a lot of the smaller fish in the international ocean. And as condescending as that approach is, it's actually a good thing for the president to to bother to meet with a whole bunch of foreign leaders who he wouldn't routinely be doing business with. I love it that the president's actually going to have a lunch meeting with all the Latin American heads of state, a lunch meeting with all of the African heads of state. Which which actually I, suggests I, that somebody at USUN is in fact doing their job. Yeah. I think one of the big differences between Ambassador Haley and Secretary Tillerson is that uh, she, much as much of a critic as she has been of the institution and of American foreign policy. She's got a staff whose strengths she's using. She's finding a way to work successfully at the UN. And there's much less evidence that the Secretary of State has figured those things out internal to the American government. David, you're a master schmoozer. You go to these cocktail parties, you have a canapé in one hand, a cocktail in the other, your notebook in another hand, a report, fishing a reporter rod in another, fishing rod. Yeah, he's always wearing his hip waders, ready to go out oh. and fly fish for trout because that, you know, makes him one of the boys. And so the question is, how do you think Trump's going to do with this? I think he's going to get bored quickly. Um, you know, the as I talk to people who were getting ready for preparing the president for this week, their biggest concern was not the tweet. It was not going off message. It was, why are you putting me through this? He does not like <laughs> meetings at which he is not the only one who speaks. One of the interesting things. I don't either. Well, that, that's true. But usually when the three of us or four of us are giving a speech, it's down in the bottom of one of the silos and no one else is listening except maybe my dog. OK, um, but hey, pay me to listen, Rosa. Pay me $250. I'll listen. <laughs> you got it. You got it. <laughs> but uh, uh, in, in one of the traditions here usually is the president slips into the, the General Assembly Hall and listens to, you know, the two speeches that precede his own uh, to, you know, show some respect for the fact that the U.N. is a place where whether you're Tonga or the United States, you have an equal right to stand up and speak for a prescribed number of minutes. Uh, and um, I'm going to be really interesting, interested to see how much listening time there is uh, for the president hearing other leaders here. Rosa, I don't think listening seems to be one of our president's strengths. Am I missing mm, something? No, 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 no. I think that's about right. Yeah, I think he's. I think he will go through, think it's all about him, and then head back to D.C. and declare victory. Um, I, I, my guess is, you know, he will go there and he will make a hash of it, but he may not make a hash of it this week. 
Um, but he may, and it'll be interesting to watch. And that's why we've talked about it here. And that's why we urge you to, you know, keep following it, come back to us in a couple of days and, and, and we'll talk more about other of these important issues. I do want to say one thing before we wrap up here. I got a communication yesterday from a Deborah Dirk of Roanoke, Virginia, who figured out the code at the beginning of the episode in terms of the numbers. We have a code? Uh, well, there are numbers at the beginning of every episode. And she. I thought that was your phone uh, number. She, yeah, thank you. That's why you <laughs> no wonder I can't reach you. That's why you never reach me. But she figured it out. She called up and said, you know, here's, here's, here's what I think it is, and it is. And so just as soon as we start sending out these mugs, which is going to happen very, very shortly, as we move into our new digs at Deep State Radio World Headquarters in Alexandria, Virginia, um, uh, she will get a mug, uh, and possibly also a t-shirt. It's a big accomplishment. Congratulations, Deb. Uh, <laughs> Are you going to reveal what the joint? code what the code was to any of the rest of us? No. Listen to this show. Oh, man. Have you ever listened? No. No, but I talk. <laughs> he listens in real time, David. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait a minute. David, can I, I suggest, can I suggest a, a new addition for the mug line? Sure. Yeah, I'd like... A, like a little gondola in a bottle with, <laughs> nice. with, with, an image in it with a tiny little David lounging across, you know, with drink in his hand and a gondolier basically singing a deep state radio kind of, of theme song. Yeah, wow. No. I'm that's dropping be, out of the podcast if you make no, those, David. No, no, that's going to be the second <laughs> one after we do the one of. David at the bar at the Charles Hotel with Sean, Corey, and Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, they wouldn't well, take me alive. <laughs> 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 well, that's what that's what some of what you have to look forward to, folks. <laughs> Tune in in a couple of days to another episode of Deep State Radio. Thank you very much, David, Rosa, and Corey. Uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.